Live, the show that is throwing its hat in the ring to become Speaker of the House. I'm Liz Winstead, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Moji Alavodayel. Hello. Coming up on today's show, comedian, actress, and icon Sandra Bernhardt joins us to talk about comedy, politics, Andre Leon Talley, and of course, abortion access. Plus, we talk about the intersections of pregnancy, loss, and abortion, and why we often view them so differently. Joining us are Greer Donnelly and Jill Lenz, two amazing law professors who will share their personal experiences and their findings on a research paper they co-wrote about how we deal with it all. Plus, so much news to get to. Welcome back, Liz. Hey, how was your break? My break was good. Uh, I Well, my, was my break good? It was fine. Um, everyone around me had COVID, so my Christmas was sort of <laughs> called off. <laughs> So that was kind of sucky. And um, we should mention that Marie is out today because she had her COVID shot and her flu shot at the same time. And there have been reports that that is not the wisest move. Yeah, civic duties will get you down sometimes. It's really, really true. How was your break? Oh, it was great. I mean, you know, Kwanzaa went on forever. So that Mm -hmm. was fun. Uh, And then we got a new cat who's adorbs. What's your cat's name? Doomsies, the best name, the Doomsies kitty. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Doomsies is a metaphor for maybe what we're heading into in 2023, but I'm not sure. Yeah, um, no, that sounds about right. My kid is just so good at cat naming. You know, our last cat was Sassy Pants, and he was like, "Name this Sassy Pants," and I was like, "Let's give him a new name." And he was like, "Doomsies," and I was like, "Yes, That's absolutely good. yes." <laughs> I do know someone who named every time they got a dog, they named it Stanley. Yeah, that's weird. That's like cloning your pets. It's, it's like super bizarre. Pets. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I know. Also, it's like weird to come back to your first podcast on January 6th, the <laughs> anniversary of Trader Palooza. <laughs> it it kind of just seems like, hey, we're kicking it off with a whole bunch of news stories all day that have just surrounded by the insurrection and trash. It's also funny that we're kicking off a Trader Palooza and the house that was attacked is in disarray. Such disarray. And also just like surprise, surprise that as we are transitioning to a very slim Republican traitorous orc majority that the same people in Congress who supported the insurrection, you're going to be surprised when I tell you this, are in the pocket of anti-abortion extremists. Like, I know, I know, I know. It's your job. Pick your job off the floor. Susan B. Anthony list, the Heritage Foundation and March for Life. The second the ink was like, ink wasn't even dry on the election papers in November. They just started compiling a whole laundry list of anti-abortion fuckery to give to you know, the new majority. And of course, the majority leader, Steve, I'm David Duke without the baggage Scalise, said he was beside himself with excitement to get the oppression rolling. So a lot of shit that they have told the uh, House Republicans that they want. Six-week ban, uh, a ban on uh, any abortions if there is a Downs diagnosis. They want to, of course, override the FDA ruling that abortion pills can be prescribed 
by telemedicine and be mailed to patients. Yeah, they also want to uh, defund Planned Parenthood, which like, didn't they do this already? Well, like- they always want to, and it's always this whole thing. I'm sure there'll be a hearing about it. And then I'm really glad that you brought up the FDA ruling about abortion pills being prescribed because Biden administration is doing decent stuff on this. But of course, they want to just roll that back, too. However, I don't know. They can't even manage to elect a House speaker. I'm concerned for them. Yeah, they might not. They may never get anything done, which I guess could be positive on some level. You know, oddly enough, missing from this list was Lindsey Graham's promise of a 15-week abortion ban. Ain't nobody want to talk about that. I know. Also, this is all, again, part of the way that Republicans do business, which is this whole list of shit ain't going to pass because the Senate is run by Democrats and the president would never vote for any of this. So in the squalor disorganization that they have shown to be before they've even quarmed (laughs) As a governing body, (laughs) their list of things they want to propose is shit they'll never get done. So big shocker. I was like talking about this with a friend yesterday, just talking about the disarray. And I'm like, on what level? It's just like, well, let them do what the fuck they want. But remember, we are not guaranteed the presidency in 2024. And so there is a, a chance that they could continue with the fuckery. And then we get stuck with whatever they want to do from 2024 to like, what is the two years after that? 2026. So much. We still got to block this bullshit as best we can. We do. But the good news is we are kicking off 2023 with some pretty decent news. So we should just let's get to it. Listen, Liz, I was shocked when we were prepping and I was like, fuck, yes, we got so much good news. The South Carolina Supreme Court has struck down the six-week ban that they had been fighting basically since Dobbs uh, went into law. This is really great news. Basically, South Carolina had had this ban, and but but before, previously, they've already said that the Constitution allows a right to privacy that keeps whatever they had before. I think it goes to like five and a half months of access to abortion care in South Carolina. And this is for the foreseeable future because their Supreme Court said that this is what our constitution says. They essentially have to do a ballot amendment to turn this around. It's pretty exciting. It is really great. And just to reiterate, we're talking about South Carolina. South Carolina. Poor Lindsey Graham, who wanted his 15-week national ban, the state he represents, is like, hey, our Constitution says go die in a fire, Lindsey. Fuck you. Yes. I know. And more good news. You know, I love bringing you Minnesota news. My home state of Minnesota yesterday, the Democratic-controlled Minnesota legislature took its first step to codify abortion into the state constitution. Even with two feet of snow on the ground, the real Freedom Caucus showed up and is making sure access to reproductive health care in Minnesota will become a constitutional right. Minnesota's not letting snow stop them. Also, New Jersey, our neighbors to the south, (laughs) making great waves. The New Jersey Department of Banking and Insurance announced that the healthcare providers who provide abortions in the state will qualify for funding from $15 million pot allocated only to doctors and facilities offering abortion care. Uh, So in a nation that is throwing money at fake clinics, looking at you, Pennsylvania, this is incredible news. Amazing. And also, John Roberts has some thoughts. John Roberts had some thoughts. Jesus, this week, chief failure of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, released his wrap up of 2022 and devoted nearly 90 percent of the whole time 
whining like a teenage villain in a YA novel about how scary it is for the justices to be held accountable by people whose lives they destroyed. And he had so much to say about how they were harmed that he didn't have any room left in his burn book to include highlights of 2022 like, oh, the leaked draft of the Dobbs decision that destroyed said lives. They are just the whiners, the chief whiners of the Supreme Court. It's just such trash. I like how they can make six people's discomfort like a lot more important than millions of people's lack of bodily autonomy. But, you know, that's what they do. You know, two words, Ginny Thomas, you know, the treatment of her tells you everything you need to know. But these were just some of the some of the little highlights. As you know, we'll put all of these stories in the show notes. And as we remind you, the best and most up to the minute resource on accessing abortion care and funding for your care is I need an A. Dot com. That's I need an A.com. So let's dive into the stories that we were most excited about this week. And I cannot wait to get to this breakdown of some huge news that will be game changing for abortion access. Two big pieces of news came. First off, the FDA has announced that abortion pills can be dispensed at pharmacies in states where abortion is still legal. And this Woo-hoo! is this is incredible news, right? Because the FDA had taken it out of regulatory categories, RIMS, I guess. It was the RIMS category that it yeah, was the in the RIMS before. category, yeah. yep. And now um, pharmacies can dispense them. You know, the tricky part in this, and please, like, this is something we have to be diligent about, is Walgreens and CVS have said that they are going to do it. Um, they have to follow some caveats, which is they have to keep the physicians that are prescribing the medication have to be only kept in a database that is local to that pharmacy so that stuff can't be widespread for the safety of the doctors. They said they would do that. But also, Moji, like we all know that CVS and Walgreens has a history of having pharmacists and then cashiers with Plan B who claim the conscience clause which says my religious beliefs say that I don't have to dispense things that I don't believe in. And are they going to do this with medication abortion? I mean, we know they're absolutely going to do this with medication abortion. And while this is really exciting news and I love it, um, I think we also know that the people who need access the most are not going to be affected by this in any positive way, right? This is going to make it easier for people in New York and California to have abortions and people in Texas are still going to have to fly to New York and California. And also impossibly even bigger news. The Justice Department has said abortion pills can be sent anywhere in America via the Postal Service or FedEx. Moji, I'm going to break down how this is possible. This is really exciting. Go ahead. It's cool, right? So an issue was whether mailing mifepristone or misoprostol, which are the two-pill regimen in medication abortion, violates something called the Comstock Act, a nearly 150-year-old law that was originally written to stop anything that could corrupt morals from being sent through the mail if the sender does not know if the drugs will be used illegally. So what the Justice Department's office says is that it does not violate the Comstock law because it doesn't know where people will take the pills. And because one can take the pills in a state where it's legal, that you can mail them to them anywhere. So essentially saying, hey, we don't know where you're taking these pills. We're just sending them to you. If you're going to walk over state lines and do them over there, fine. Also, you know, are people, I mean, are people going to be 
I mean, who knows what kind of laws this will bring into, right? Are people right. then going to create laws where it's like they're going to break down your door and check your toilet and check your your everything else to see if you're taking pills in a state? Let's stop giving them ideas. I know. I know. <laughs> this is great news. It's great news. And the fact that like you can order them and have them and 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 dispense them and get them in your state and it's still not ideal. You know, it still should be a medication abortion should be available over the counter. It's not, but it's right. a first step. And the fact that you can mail pills to someone someplace and you can receive them privately mitigates one piece of it. The second part that is still complete fuckery is that you would have to help hold yourself 100% legally in the clear. You have to drive to a state where it's okay, which means two days in that state, right? having, you know, all of that stuff that goes along with it. Two days of that state and then standing in your car and taking a pill. <laughs> yeah. Or so sleeping pointless. in your car because you can't afford a hotel <laughs> right. and all the other stuff that goes along with it. But the fact of the matter is, if people can access pills in a way they haven't before, these are two gigantic wins that have been given to us on the federal level. Yeah, this is a game changer. I'm really excited. And um, I'm excited to see what happens, what we what we learn as like these are implemented and people start talking about their experiences. I think it'll be really, um, I'm hoping that it'll be really beautiful and helpful. I am too. I'm sure there will be nosy neighbors out digging through people's mail, doing all kinds of shit. You know, who knows what fuckery we, real or imagined, but mostly real, will come from, you know, the vaginal crossing guards who want to make sure that you are not allowed to have your freedoms, how they're going to react, and then what kind of laws will be made in the process of it. It terrifies me. But when those things happen, we'll talk about it and you'll hear about it here. That's right. Um, And it's encouraging, especially considering the desperate measures people are taking because of the harm that's being caused by being denied care. You know, you were just talking about people having access to pills, but like what's happening in states right now, states that have really strict abortion bans, pregnant people in those states are suffering. You know, politicians who create these laws, they say they're in place to protect the unborn, but that justification just bypasses protecting people who can become pregnant. And so over this holiday break, a woman in Idaho documented the profound lack of medical care she received over a 19-day miscarriage. That's almost a month of miscarrying. Yeah. And also a Louisiana woman was told that her prenatal care would not even start until 12 weeks of pregnancy. And it's considered, she considered, and I think also that it was a direct result of, of um, Louisiana's abortion ban. And so when she started to miscarry around 10 and a half weeks, she went to two different emergency rooms and those two different emergency rooms sent her home while she was bleeding. And I think we covered this before, but another Louisiana woman had to travel out of state after she learned the fetus she was carrying didn't have a skull, but the Louisiana abortion ban and the fact that all clinics there closed because of the ban, she had no other recourse. Um, And behind this backdrop, the governor of Louisiana has called the uh, implementation of their abortion ban relatively smooth. I don't know what's smooth about this. And these are the stories that are just making it into the press, right? We know for every three of these stories we hear, there's 300 that we're not hearing. Right. And I think that an important point to make sure we say is this woman in Idaho documented these 19 days on TikTok. And so the fact of the matter is people are so desperate for any kind of awareness raising or 
anybody that could possibly help them, that they're forced to reveal their most intimate details of their lives on social media in the hopes that somebody can help them. And it turns out somebody did help that woman from Idaho. Somebody did recommend a doctor that that person could finally go to because they made a TikTok video. But nobody should have to be publicly begging and have to put their medical experiences on the table just in the hopes that somebody will care for them. And I think sometimes when we hear these people want to vilify doctors like, you know, well, they should do something. But like the penalties for violating these bans are prison time, are ridiculous amounts of money, are loss of license. These are literally devastating for their lives. It's like people shouldn't have to choose. And it's wild that politicians can sit and never have to go through this, never have to confront a person in pain, never have to be a person in pain and be like, this is going well, huh? Yeah. And it really like, it's really gaslighting patients. It's yep. gaslighting patients to say, you know, as you're dying and bleeding out on TikTok to have a law that's like, our state only helps in in even some cases of rape and incest, not all cases of rape and incest, but the fact that you have fetal remains lodged in your reproductive system that you cannot get rid of because a doctor won't do it. And they're saying to you, that's not enough. That is fucking gaslighting. So I like, you know, because he even has a person who's had an abortion and a child. You don't, we don't all know everything we need, we would like to know about how these things work. And I was like, well, why doesn't it come out? And obviously, fundamentally, fetal remains, you know, they're they're in your body. They have they have hormones that make them stay in your body. So they're not just falling out all the time. You actually need to actively work to get them out of your body before going into sepsis or a load of other things that could render a person infertile, dead, seriously harmed. Um, and the idea that a doctor has to look at a person and nurses have to look to a per- at a person bleeding through a hospital bed and say, come back later. Or come back after I consult my lawyer to see if I can do this without losing my license, going to jail and being fined hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, these pregnancy loss stories and the grief around them haven't been told historically at all. No, not at all. But Liz, we have the perfect guests to expand this conversation on how we've been really derelict in our conversations about pregnancy loss and abortion. Today, we're joined by Greer Donnelly and Jill Lentz, law professors and legal experts on abortion to discuss their own pregnancy loss experiences and their joint research paper that examines abortion, pregnancy loss, and the subjective nature of fetal personhood. Hi, welcome Jill and Greer. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hi, thank you for having us. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Wow, we're out of time. (laughs) 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 Oh, well, something I wanted to focus on and talk about to get us started is this incredible paper that you two wrote. You address how people who work in pregnancy loss and abortion within the abortion rights movement, um, that they're not often working together, even though there's a lot of overlap clearly in in this area. A pregnant person's physical experience is almost identical with both outcomes, but both come with totally different types of stigma. And I was hoping that you two could discuss some of the key points you address in your paper for our audience. Yeah. So um, thank you again so much for having us. We're really thrilled to be here. Um, So I think, you know, fundamentally, our paper kind of tackles a problem that Jill and I have faced in, in our work. So I 
write a lot about abortion. Jill has is probably one of the nation's biggest experts on stillbirth and the law. Um, and we've kind of in the past written a bunch of different um, papers that come at, you know, our own respective disciplines, including, um, you know, a paper I wrote about abortions based on fetal anomaly, um, where people who have abortions often tend to kind of feel a tremendous amount of grief um, and, you know, attachment to their pregnancies. And whenever we write about this, and Jill, when she writes about stillbirth, we often have gotten a, a common criticism from people in the repro movement. Like, this is makes me really nervous. This makes me really uncomfortable. This is a slippery slope to personhood. And I don't, I don't like it, right? Um, and it's, some, you know, Jill and I randomly, the universe brought us together to kind of work and tackle that really, really hard problem together, which is, you know, how do we make space for people to have emotional connections in their pregnancy and to feel grief and loss when they experience miscarriage, stillbirth, and even abortion without, you know, kind of just um, going into the kind of personhood at conception framing that is so pervasive and so problematic in our abortion debate. And it's also, I want to point out that that framing is pervasive, not like naturally. I, I think it's been more of a push by the anti-abortion side, right? It's not like, organic. It's, it's not organic. There okay. you go. It, it is not. I, I don't, I mean, we, I, I, you know, we've never deeply looked at to the into the history, but I think a lot of the feelings like we need to avoid personhood and we need to avoid pregnancy lots of my when I say we, I mean the abortion rights movement, is because of um how the anti-abortion side has really weaponized it, right? They've said, well, you're sad after your miscarriage, thus that you know that must mean that that's a baby, that's a person, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a a more difficult way to answer that, that recognizes the nuance. Um, but there's also just the, we have to disagree with them, right? Like they're pushing this, this is a weapon. It is a powerful weapon uh, that there is something going on there with whatever that is that's growing inside. So it's been weaponized by the anti-abortion side. And we've just kind of like, we just kind of let that weaponization happen. But And also I feel like the weaponization happened because we've seeded the entire conversation to them and allowed them to give us the framing for the past 30 years. Yeah. And so it was it wasn't even hard for them, which is the part that really breaks my heart, is that we just handed them this gift and 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 said, feel free, really, just please set the parameters um, and take all of the parameters away from individuals who are pregnant so that. Nobody gets to make those decisions about how they feel um, about their own pregnancy loss. I think that's so right. Like I was, you know, considered myself a reproductive justice scholar when I f became pregnant for the first time and that pregnancy very traumatically ended at 22 weeks. And I remember falling into some of those um, narratives myself, right? Like someone who had spent a ton of time supporting abortion rights all of a sudden, right? I didn't know how to make sense of my loss. I was very sad. I experienced profound grief for a long time. And it was, that was the only framing that existed out there to try to help explain what this meant. And, um, you know, luck, this was a short lived, the, the, you know, falling into that kind of trap was short lived for me, but I could very much imagine for people that don't have that commitment to start, that that becomes, you know, kind of your whole way of thinking about pregnancy. 
Yeah. If you're looking for some sort of comfort after pregnancy loss, you're not going to find much within uh, abortion rights discourse. And I mean, it's not right. Like it's a different context too. So I'm not trying to criticize that there's not, you know, necessarily supportive there as anything supportive there, but then so much of the anti-abortion stuff overlaps, like the, like the, you know, the babies as angels and like, like mementos you might buy afterwards to sort of yes. memorialize your kiddo. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's such an overlap and the anti-abortion side is taking advantage of it. I feel like they, I mean, and again, I'm not a researcher, but it almost feels like they take what people would feel out of these. And then like you've used, you use this phrase in this conversation, weaponize it against us, right? Like I'm not opposed to fetal burial um, fundamentally, but I feel like they sort of try to mandate it in a way where it's like, oh, well now I have to fight against fetal burial, right? Where fundamentally I'm like, no, what I want to support is people individually being able to make the decisions they want to make and not have to um, feel like they own the a the the idea of life, right? Like that's I feel like one yes. of our big mistakes was less conceding pro life as as if that's actually what they are about. But then yeah, I think it it just leaves a lot of emotional space for them to own and for us to have to give up one. And then it it also reaffirms to you that you should feel grief after pregnancy loss, right? Like you should want you should want burial, um, and. And that also denies people the freedom to experience it as they want to experience. Well, and I think, isn't that really the largest point too for me in all of this is the fact that if you don't have the the societal norms of grief every time there's pregnancy loss, you know, falling on a shame sword or having the appropriate, I guess is what I'm looking for. And that there has to be grief, right? There isn't a set of like, of tools for someone to actually assess yourself. You know, it's sort of like when you're in high school, you don't really get a chance to buy the clothes you want because you just buy the clothes that everybody wants you to wear because that's what everyone's doing and you want to fit in. And this is that on a profound level where it's like no one's ever allowed someone a series of tools, a series of prompt questions they can ask themselves that helps them get to the place of how they actually feel instead of feeling guilty about how they're supposed to feel if they don't feel that. This supposed to feel thing to me is is sort of the crux of it that that I grip my teeth about. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, perhaps the group that might actually get this the the most right are abortion providers. You know, I think the and and I would say, you know, them as separate from the abortion rights movement or kind of the national narratives that go on about abortion. But, you know, I think abortion providers are actually because they deal with this every day with their patients. Right. They know that 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 pregnant people have really different responses to abortion. Right. And and, you know, we talk a lot in the paper about all the different factors that can go into someone having an attachment in pregnancy. Um, You know, we kind of like, you know, the 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 proxy that people often talk about is like, well, if it's a loss, it's a, you know, it's a grieved experience. If it's an abortion, it's not, but that's actually not how it works. Right. Um, many people will have miscarriages, um, sometimes early miscarriages and and unwanted pregnancy and actually feel quite relieved about that. Um, and then there are people who have abortions for all sorts of reasons, um, that are, you know, pregnancies that are wanted, or at least, uh, they were conflicted about whether or not to have the abortion in which they feel and experience, um, attachment and grief. 
And so you see abortion providers have this, you know, the the mantra, right? Meet the patient where they are. They call the pregnancy a baby if the person is calling it a baby, right? There's just a fetus. And so, but I don't know if that exists, you know, the, it, there just seems to us to be this huge break and how we talk about abortion from a national perspective, from the sake of like public relations and how people actually experience pregnancy, abortion and pregnancy loss, you know, in their lived experiences, right? And, 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 you know, going back to your article in the initial way we kicked off this conversation, right, which is why is pregnancy loss segmented? You know, why is it that abortion, miscarriage, you know, all of the all pregnancy, like, why can't we talk about pregnancy loss as an overarching concept and then break down the specifics of the kinds of pregnancy loss people experience and give people tools for those experiences and also tools to say, if you're feeling relief, even if you feel conflicted and sad, like learning how to have those two feelings together sometimes I think it's a challenge. I don't think a lot of we don't we don't help people navigate dueling experiences like that. And I think it's something that, you know, one of the kind of the last part of our paper goes into this more. But I think, you know, there's I think there's probably an impulse right now in this moment where we're really truly at an abortion crisis to say this isn't the time to be integrating these things. But we are really trying to fight against that because it's exactly this that is also going to lead to more criminalization criminalization of people mm-hmm. who are self-managing abortions, right? Um, who tend to be uh, poor, tend to be women of color, right? And so like these are the this this classic grief response that people expect people to have. It's also going to come into play in the abortion wars when people show up at an emergency room bleeding, right? And not necessarily grieving. And that, that actually doesn't mean anything. Uh-huh. But it could be it's going to be something that a lot of, you know, anti-abortion healthcare workers use to try to figure out which people are the ones that self-managed versus are having actual losses. Basically um, who they need to call the police on or exactly. not. Yeah. Yeah. And all the ways we're all the ways around criminalizing pregnancy loss, too. You know, it's like all of those things. One thing I want to ask is when you did the study what is it that people want to talk about? You know, what what's missing in the conversations that people don't feel they have permission to explore or even tools with which to explore when it comes to pregnancy loss? I was actually going to respond to something you said before too, Liz, similarly that like, I just, we just don't, we're not good at talking about death at generally, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're not great at talking about dead babies, although somehow we're great at it within the abortion context, which I do not understand. Um, but in the miscarriage context or the stillbirth context, especially, we're not great at talking about it. Mm-hmm. And and part of that, especially with pregnancy loss, I mean, I mean, pregnancy loss seems like it's not a seems like it doesn't happen anymore, right? We're like 2022. Um, you know, like medicine is amazing. But also part of it too is that, I mean, for 50 years, the abortion debate has taught us that. That pregnancy either ends in an abortion or it ends with the with live childbirth, which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So I mean, but it's not just the abortion debate; it's also the extreme medicalization of pregnancy, and it's you know the just ridiculous things they can do with like twenty one week old you know gestational weeks babies now. I mean, I, I was really struck by you know no one talks about their abortion, and then but no one talks about their pregnancy losses either. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's also too the amount of stories that we have heard about somebody who knows they're going to be delivering a still a stillborn fetus. Hospitals not communicating with each other about the care that person should get, having them be in rooms, having people talk to them like, are you excited? You know, like all of the things around that and that every step of the way, if you don't have a viable pregnancy, self-diagnosing or just self like analyzing what you did to cause it, you know, over and over again. And that is just like to help someone mitigate that guilt would be so helpful. I mean, medical care is so important um, when you're experiencing pregnancy loss. And and um, yeah, I also, my kiddo was stillborn. I was 37 weeks pregnant um, about over five years ago. And like, I got the best medical care. I mean, the doctors were amazing. The nurses were amazing. But I also, I mean, th- this really sticks out to me. Um, one thing they said to me, and they were trying to reassure me that it wasn't my fault. And to be honest, I hadn't really even considered the fact that it could be my fault yet. Um, but but they were trying to reassure it to me that it wasn't my fault. And um, they thought I had a placental abruption. So they thought that my um, placenta detached from my uterus. And one of the things they said to me to reassure me was that it's not like you did cocaine or anything. Oh, shit. Wow. Yes, right. And I'm sitting And if there, you had, it's your fault because I didn't know yeah. that that was a... That was I didn't know that that was a direct effect to um, miss pregnancy loss at 37 weeks. That's it's, wild. I mean, I, I, you, there's way too many studies out there to read that will say what and what. But right. But I'm just sitting there and I'm in fucking shock. OK, and I'm just sitting there. I'm in shock from everything that's happening, obviously. But I'm just sitting there. I'm like, how do you know I didn't use cocaine? Right. Because you're blonde. Know. That's how I, they knew. And, <laughs> yeah. and how, what would you be saying to me right now if you thought I had used cocaine? Right. So that's a thing that freaks me out for the future of the medical care that pregnant patients are going to receive, because if they if they show too much relief or or they just are not white and they don't have money. Like or they're numb and just not giving or they're or they're neurodiverse, right? Like yes. neurodiverse people, it's a, it's a language issue. It's like you just may not be responding in the way that people expect. And therefore, one could end up criminalized and and having to negotiate pregnancy loss and in the criminal justice system at the same time. I'm not meaning to criticize my nurses at all. Like they were, you know, they were saying things that they thought could help me. I received wonderful medical care. I'm just worried that other people are not going to receive that right. same care because that sticks with you. That's right. sti- like the whole, yeah. like how you continue to function. <laughs> is is so much relates to how you're treated. And I often think too, like for that person who is a person of color who is treated, you know, in, in a system that does not, that's racist, the path that got them to their care has also been riddled with racism and garbage and harm to have this tipping point of being pregnant and, and all of it together, you know, it's just like, uh, it it just breaks my heart. Absolutely. And we, and we know, right. That like that women of color are many fold times more likely to be criminalized for stillbirth. Right. And that's, that happened before it's happening. That's been happening for a while. It's not like 
a new thing, right? We're all more worried that this is going to happen increasingly in a post row America, but it's not like it is new. You know, Jill has tons of stories that she reads about truly the trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma, right? To be going, having a stillbirth and then be investing. So the state start investigating you for having potentially caused that. And, you know, it's just, I can't imagine. And Liz, you mentioned before, like, you know, the pregnant person is like, oh, did I do something, right? Did I do something? Because that's a natural thought. Even when you can't point to anything, you still like, was there something I did? And, you know, plenty of babies are just fine. And the vast majority of babies are just fine after drug use during pregnancy. The vast majority are just fine, right? Maybe not immediately fine, maybe a little withdrawal, but like overall fine, right? They're alive, I guess, is is what I'm trying to accentuate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with all their organs. And the idea of like the doctors and the state reinforcing that self-blame to a population that already has lesser access to mental health treatment. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And especially folks who are desperate to, if you have a pregnancy that is, you're unsure how it's going to go or how it might end up. And you you might be desperate to want to try to save that pregnancy. You're putting so much faith in your healthcare providers. And so all that we've talked about just feels like if we don't take this, and that's why I think your study is so important and why I'm so excited to talk to you both today, is if we don't emphasize intersecting, A, these movements, but B, giving people language and skills and tools to ask the right questions so that when they realize their pregnancy outcomes are going to be a miscarriage or or stillborn or whatever that outcome is that is not a healthy live baby that they can have a community to talk to have other people that have been through it and that they don't self define and blame themselves as somebody you know i just all those things are super important and I'm appreciative of y'all so much of your work. I also had excellent pregnancy care and I had a healthy live birth with my pregnancy. But um, as I'm, as we're talking, I'm like, there was no, in, in my full, full prenatal care, no conversations about how to deal with pregnancy loss at all. There was no setup at all. And I don't know if it's because people are superstitious and they feel like talking about it may make it more of a reality. But as I'm thinking through, I'm like, you know, if if I'd encountered it, I just would have been lost. And it's a little heartbreaking. You know, truth be told, Moji, things that are hard that happen to people who have capacities for pregnancy aren't ever about at all. Menopause. How about <laughs> menopause? Just like forget about pregnancy, right? The the fact that your body betrays you in a myriad of ways during menopause is not clearly known. Like I'm going to say two words, vaginal atrophy, and it's real and it's not talked about a lot because it sounds scary. And so much of society ties us into our value as birthing people that if if there's any challenges around that, your, your stock goes down. Your stock goes down. And that is part of the harm. I, I have to just say that, um, you know, one of the things we're learning in this moment with is that abortion bans impact all people, um, people's pregnancy outcomes in so many ways. And this is like just such an open door for the true reproductive justice framing and the reproductive justice movement, right? Is we need to move away from this 
silo of abortion only and start embracing like how do we support people through whatever pregnancy outcomes uh, or whatever pregnancy, you know, if they want whatever reproductive health outcomes they want, right? Um, we can help people try to not be pregnant if they don't want to be. We can help people get birth control. We can help people, you know, get pregnant when they want to be pregnant. We can help people stay pregnant. We can help people parent and, you know, and breastfeed. We can help people have abortions. We can do all of that, right? We can help people keep and raise the children that they have. Um, and I really think that, you know, that's the future we need to be going into. And, you yeah. know, all of this impact on um, on people who are having miscarriages, these abortion bans are just showing the integration and the overlap of abortion and miscarriage and pregnancy loss um, that we can really be taking advantage of right now in this moment. 1,000%. Yes. And one other thing to Moji's point too is that, um, you know, most pregnancy losses happen in the first eight weeks before people are even seen, have any care. Right. right. So, you know, a lot of times it's people start bleeding before they've even been able to get their first appointment or their first ultrasound. And it's like they have no they have no one, you know, they go to the ER because like what else are they supposed to do where, you know, people in general don't get much less good care because they don't know their doctors. Right. They don't have any relationships. Um, ERs can be totally overcrowded as they are right now. Um, and so, you know, we're just really and I and I actually it, we're just kind of leaving people to experience that alone. And it's one of the reasons I think that people have so much shame and so much self-blame and, and not a lot of tools with, to, to figure it out. Linda Lane is this wonderful anthropologist who's written a feminist account of pregnancy loss. Um, she had six miscarriages, I think. And she wrote once, and, and Guru and I just thought this was amazing, that the best medical care she received for one of her miscarriages was at an abortion clinic. That was the place yeah. that appreciated what she was going through. Wow. Makes and sense. One of the um, models that we love and that we wrote about in our paper is at I think the university of Pennsylvania, um, which is kind of, you know, trail creating this program for which exists in the UK for just early pregnancy care centers that offer both pregnancy loss treatment and abortion care, because the treatments yes. are the same, right. right? And like, talk about integration, talk about destigmatization, de right? It's this, you go, you can go to the same place and talk to people who are trusted, who are not going to judge you, where you can be open about the fact that you're six weeks pregnant, you just found out, and then now you're bleeding and you didn't know if you were going to have an abortion or you wanted to continue the pregnancy, right? You can be in one space where all of that is acceptable and people can treat you with respect. Yes, that's that's yeah. the world we are. You two, all of us are working towards. Thank you two so much. And we'll put all of the things that you have done and everything in our show notes so you can download them, read them and share with people, especially people, you know, who are experiencing pregnancy loss and need some guidance. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Greer Donnelly and Jill Linz for joining us today. To stay up to date with their work, you can follow them on Twitter at Greer Donnelly and at Jill Weberlins. And Liz. Hi, Moji. Are you ready to play America's favorite game show? Do you think it's America's favorite game show or do you think it's the international podcasting game show sensation? You know, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. You ready to play? I am ready to play. Okay, good. Because I am ready to play also the international podcast sensation Six Degrees of Abortion is the game we are about to play. This is the game where I, or Marie when she's here, tell Liz a little story about something in the news. And then she has one, two, three, four, five, six tries to link it to abortion. 
You ready? I'm always ready. You do stay ready. If you stay ready, you have to get ready. So this is a really funny story that I read. This is a woman. She's a myth. She's a legend. She's an icon. She is Dionne Warwick. And she recently told a story, um, or maybe Snoop Dogg told the story, of like a bunch of West Coast rappers coming to her house and her saying like, why don't y'all call me a bitch? You're going to have daughters one day, blah, 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 whatever. And you're going to, so I need you to man up and call me a bitch. And Snoop said, I changed my music after that, which I think is hilarious. So in six tries, would you link the icon Dionne Warwick to abortion? Um, sure. I think, let's see. So how I'm going to try to play this out and I have to think of it really really hard is there's Burt Bacharach songs that Dionne Warwick has done that other people have also covered, right? So it's like, okay, Dionne Warwick, Burt Bacharach songs. Um, this is really cheap. Dionne Warwick saying, do you know the way to San Jose? I have been to San Jose. <laughs> Does that count? I was literally going to say you can't use the state of California, but I was like, Liz isn't going to try that. And then the first thing you do is try that. <laughs> I have been to California. Specifically, I've been to San Jose for <laughs> Netroots Nation. I love abortion. I run Abortion <laughs> Access Front. So when Dionne Warwick says, do you know the way to San Jose? I'm like, indeed I do. It can either take I-5 directly up from LA or I can fly there on a plane, but you can't go direct. So that is my answer. Can I go there? Do I get it? Do I get a ruling on that? I don't accept that. <laughs> you don't get to accept it. Angela, do you accept it? Uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, it's so funny because I thought that I gave some clues in it and I don't know if this really works, but I was like, Dion Warwick, Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg, Martha, Martha, um, what's the Martha Stewart? Stewart. Martha Stewart's has got to have somebody who's pro-abortion <laughs> that she's talked to covered at. Oh, you that know what? I could have, you know what? I could have gone there because here, here's what I'll go and I won't take it as a win now that you say that. So I would go um, Snoop Dogg to Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart to a Planned Parenthood fundraiser in the Hamptons that I happened to be at. So I could have gone there, but I didn't because I didn't remember. Oh, well, I fucked up. I lost this one. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm not kicking off 2023 <laughs> to a good start at all. I am. I am. This is great. I know. Oh my you gosh. feel so celebratory. <laughs> the best thing that's happened all year. Do you know what might be the next best thing that happened all year? Ooh, 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 tell me. We got a new fake sponsor. Oh, I love our sponsors. It's 2023. New year, new fake sponsor. Mochi, introduce our fine, fine listeners to the latest fake sponsor of this fine, fine podcast. Well, we all know their insurance policies to cover us for all sorts of things like a heart attack or a car accident. But are you covered if you have a heart attack while chasing a patient as they walk into an abortion clinic? Or what if you have a car accident because you couldn't see oncoming traffic with your Oath Keepers mask on. If this sounds familiar, you may want to switch to Religious Liberty Mutual, the insurance company that makes sure you're protected when you've been harmed exercising your good Christian values. Religious Liberty Mutual is the insurance company that only covers accidenting in the name of Jesus Christ. So if you break your wrist in a friendly game of touch football, keep your blue cross or your Aetna. 
You break your wrist hauling coolers of stolen fetuses to your pro-life press conference. Other insurance companies may call that a crime. Not Religious Liberty Mutual. Not only do they cover your medical costs, they cover your lost wages and the cost of your replacement to keep transporting the entire freezer of fetuses to everyone who has a plan to use the stolen medical waste in a video or a mass for the unborn. And what if you're not sure your claim falls into protecting your religious liberty? They'll help you fill out the paperwork and make sure you are always the victim. Like when you suspect your next door neighbor is offending you by using birth control or being gay. If you fall off a ladder peering into their windows, Religious Liberty Mutual sends an ambulance and an adjuster to get back on that ladder and get the photos you need to prove you've been violated. Sign up now using the promo code YOURBODYMYCHOICE and you'll get 20% off if you bundle health, home, and auto insurance. Religious Liberty Mutual, because nothing is more sacred than making sure you are covered when you confront anybody different than you. They're great. What a fine, fine company. <laughs> I like somebody that like understands that, you know, when you're harming somebody and it's against the law, you might not be covered, but they're going to cover you as long as it's in the name of Jesus. I've never had an insurance company that would send someone to get back on the ladder for me. And I love that for us. I feel like that's good. It's like stalker insurance, you know? Yeah. You don't think of the little things, but just remember, you have to do it in the name of Jesus. Always, always. Anyway, let's walk away from our great fake sponsor and talk about our incredible new guest. She's a performer, actress, singer, author, activist, radio host, and New York City badass. Please welcome Sandra Bernhardt. Hi, thank you for joining us. Hey, Sandy. Hey. Hi, ladies. We're so excited to have you. I wanted to start out because I grew up uh, in New York reading The Village Voice, and you were like the queen of the counterculture, but also just the general society pages. You were like at every glittery party, you were all the cool people, but also on like late night talking shows and like fashion magazine pages. It was like this ubiquitousness you had that was like not overly saturated. It was just like, Oh, yeah. Sandra Bernhardt is everywhere. So I want to know, what is one event or a party or a show where you had to take a moment and say to yourself, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm having this experience. This is incredible. I will never forget this. I, I think maybe it was um, doing some fashion shows in Paris where I was with my very good friend, Andre Leontali, who we lost this year. And matter of fact, I was just looking through his catalog for Christie's. They're auctioning off his whole his whole home, and he's donating the money to the Abyssinian Baptist, Baptist Church. Church, who also recently lost a, a pastor. That's right. And I was th- at at Andre's memorial. Reverend Butt spoke, and that was just like last April. So it's very strange that they're both gone now, and very very poignant. So I think anytime. Andre introduced me or brought me into his realm. Those were the times I was most in awe and the most attentive because I knew I was going to learn something from being with him, not just be a part of some superficial fashion situation because he was so rooted in history and such a a, a love and understanding of French history. And he spoke fluent French. And he really had the depth and breadth of what went into fashion and the history of it, Marie Antoinette. So 
Um, and he took me to Versailles, which was amazing. And, you know, those moments, those experiences will never happen again. When social media permeated our environment, when everybody thought they became an influencer, uh, when they had something to comment on that they knew nothing about, all of that authenticity just dissipated out of our out of our conversation. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant by ubiquitousness. I feel like I see these influencers now and I'm not inspired, um, but I remember just reading and being inspired by you. Well, also, also, it wasn't like I wasn't just everywhere all the time. They were rarefied moments and and people covered those moments. It wasn't like they were just like these phony every day. Somebody's doing something fabulous that doesn't exist. There's nothing fabulous happening every day. If anything happening, it's fabulous. If it's once a year, that's a, a, a miracle. So, <laughs> I mean, let's just call it what it is. You ladies are fabulous every day because what you're doing right now is so essential to our survival. And that's what's become glamorous. The people that are rolling up their sleeves in the trenches, um, sacrificing all of the creature comforts that we all want to save people's lives and prevent people from coming into the world who should not be here. But Sandy, I just want to say, like, you're somebody who has in your touch tone moments, like you said, with Andre and other folks, you did not have a frivolity. Like I got to, I was had the luxury of meeting Andre Leontali and doing MSNBC with him. And I got to the studio and he knew like everything about my work. First of all, I panicked to have to go on a show with him for what to wear. It was like a shit show of like epicness that I, and then he said, you have Diane Keaton realness. And I was like, this is it. I am done. (laughs) But it was always people who, and you are one of these people who it's like, you're a walking vanity fair, you know, issue where it's like part fashion in-depth article, like gorgeous, provocative conversation, like all rolled into one. You weren't hanging around with dumb shits. You have no time for that. That is the one thing I love about you more than life itself. You do not suffer fools. No, baby, I do not. And I never will. And I don't need to be celebrated by people that really don't get it. And and not get it on so many levels. The most important not getting it is having the humanity and the humility that goes into being a very, very elevated person. Speaking of people that that don't get it, <laughs> that are all in our in our spaces even more, your activism in watching it and learning, um, it's always it's always been there. You're Jewish, you're an openly queer woman, and you're in a time where Nazis and homophobes are even more normalized than than they were 10 years ago. I'm wondering, how do you find the strength to keep your reservoir filled for you personally, but also your activism continues? You're engaging yourself. You're taking up the space. You need to take up space in these areas. How do you continue to do that? Well, it's interesting. I just took um, a trip to Texas. I performed in Dallas, San Antonio for this fabulous organization, Fiesta Youth. Yes. I'm glad you know about them. And then two shows in Austin. And then I was literally Tuesday night on stage. In Charleston, South Carolina, at the Gallard Center, they put up the um, Spiegel tent, that tent that travels oh, around cool. the country. And I have to say, I was totally inspired by being out 
in parts of the country that we see every day that, you know, MSNBC covers and we wonder where people's heads are at. And there's so many good people in all of these places. I think that the media overblows it. I think that social media overblows it. Now, of course, with, you know, Twitter and Elon Musk, who's just a, a, a blubbering idiot. What a fucking mm-hmm. crackpot. I so mean, dumb. what? what? Yeah. I, I don't take everything as seriously as I maybe should. But when it comes to anti-Semitism, I think it's a cheap shot right now. I think it's easy for people to get into that headspace. I don't truly believe there that there are that many anti-Semitic people. And I'm not worried. I'm, I'm always a little, I always watch my back. I always have since I left home at, when I was 17 years old. I've always like looked around when I'm driving, when I'm walking. That's just who I am. I don't, I mean, I'm just expect people to be dangerous. So I'm ready. But I don't have that that fear or that suspicion or paranoia about any of it. You know, the Jewishness, the gayness, the womanness. I feel like I get it. I can look at somebody in the eye and go, you're going to be okay. You may not get me. You may not get it, but I'm going to guide you through this shit, okay? I mean, has this ever literally happened? No, but I know that it could. Right. I feel like yeah. you've been long gaming it in uh, the activist spaces for a while, including being involved in ACT UP, which I remember being super important when I was younger. And people don't talk about just like how it kind of revolutionized ways that we looked at activism, especially around issues that seemed a little unsexy to the broader culture. Can you just talk a little bit about your activism in ACT UP? Honestly, I really, at the time when it was happening, the thing that was important to me was I I reflected so much of what was going on through my work. You know, when I was doing Without You, I'm Nothing um, at the Orpheum Theater on 2nd Avenue, that is where I synthesized all of this. And John Boscovich, who was my um, my collaborator, who was, um, he was a conceptual artist. He was a lawyer. He was gay. He was insane. He brought so much of that intellectual acuity to my work that it was more coming through filtered through that than the actual being on the street i was not on the street with these people i mean i was in pose yeah that's Mm -hmm. what was so beautiful about doing pose it was like i took the literal aspect of that experience and got to do it as an actor but in 1988 um when a lot of my friends were sick and people were dying yes i was there but i was not I was not on the street. I was not one of those people, but it was there in my work. It was there on my on the stage and addressed in a way that bridged the gap between what those people were doing and what the audience may not have understood or fully grasped. But I think that's the key a lot of times for art, right? You were immersed with people who were profoundly in it. You knew through your art, you could talk about it to an audience full of people who might not understand it and have them have a greater understanding. And I think like one of the things I loved about your character in Pose was it really laid out when the AIDS crisis was at its peak, how much nurses and especially lesbians were at the forefront of the caregiving. And I think that's a reminder to everybody who didn't really understand what was happening at the epicenter in New York at that point. Yeah, it's true. 
you know, there's something stalwart about lesbians and women that, you know, transcend just about everything. You know, it's, I think as a woman, as a child bearer, as a caregiver, as a nurturer, we have an ability to reach far beyond the limitations physically and emotionally that, that most people, most men don't have that, you know, that in, innate gift. Anyway, the bottom line is it was a great opportunity for me to come full circle and, and really be able to educate the modern, you know, viewing audience of what happened then because things get lost in translation, you know, and like any good, important story, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be, you know, the AIDS epidemic, these are stories that need to be constantly retold because they're not taught in school a lot of the time. So where else are you going to learn them? Yeah, exactly. You mentioned being somebody who's bore a child and you have a grown daughter who is of childbearing years right now. Tell me about A, she's very dope. Um, B, how is she looking at the world? And how, you know, is she, is she an activist? Is she seeing it? Is she in it? Like, talk about like, I, you can't have not raised a, da- a daughter who is not like <laughs> in it hard. What I love about her is she said, well, you know, I don't feel, I'm not really worried about it. We had to do this before. I mean, there were the Janes, there were the people that like, you know, there was that support system. We're just going to have to do that again. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm glad you feel that way, you know, and she just gets it, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't proceed with fear. She, I think her, my, all my nieces, they're all kind of around the same age. They're all like, yeah, matter of fact, it's going to be okay. We're going to, we're going to turn, turn the beat around. And she reads, she listens to podcasts. She is highly educated. She loves you guys. She, you know, she knows what's happening. And they just have their, their circle, you know, they have their drum circle and they just beat the drum and get it out there and make sure that, you know, and she votes, she doesn't, she doesn't miss an election and she's just in the thick of it. And she's, you know, she takes care of herself, you know, she's, I mean, I don't want to talk about her personal, you know, approach to, you know, birth control, but she, um, she's been on it and that's just not, an issue, but she also understands that it's an issue for a lot of other people. Yeah. We are getting to the end, but I want to know what's giving you joy these days. That's so much. I mean, I'm like, I love to eat. I love good food. So I'm like where, I mean, I was down in Texas. I ate barbecue. Mm. I ate Mexican food. I was in Charleston. I ate food from this James Beard, fabulous restaurant called Husk where they never like let you take food out, but they let me take food out because I was performing that night and it was delicious. Humble brag right there. <laughs> I know. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Slight flex. <laughs> I like that flex. That's a good flex. I called them directly. And the guy said, he goes, oh, I'm fully aware of who you are. He goes, hold on a minute. Let me see what we can do. And he was on the right side of history with that too. <laughs> he really was. Um, I love performing. I love doing my radio show. I love being with friends. I love walking my dog and running into people in my neighborhood here in New York City with their dogs. 
I love animals. I think animals are, I, I love the dodo, which is that, you know, fabulous. Um, oh, that's a great website. I mean, they destroy. Wait, what is that? The dodo. D-O-D-O. And they have it on Twitter. They have it on, but I do follow mainly on Instagram and they have stories and about mainly about dogs, but cats too, for cat lovers. And I either cry or I laugh my ass off. I mean, animals to me are so innately funny and entertaining and so real. I just, I just, I don't know. Nothing makes me happier than an animal, than a funny, funny, smart animal. That's it. I think that we have got to like, just like take a step back and give it up to animals because we are so fucking plebeian and boring and they just have natural senses of humor and, and class and style that we just don't have. It's true. Um, I love your radio show so much. I am privileged enough to be a regular guest on yes, there. You, you are, baby. You're a charter member. Okay. Um, Sandy Land squad. And Sandy squad. I know. And I'm in super good company and God bless, you know, Andy Cohen for having on radio Andy on Sirius, uh, um, some really good provocative shit. I, I am like hats off, man. But, um, also one thing I want to ask you before we go too, in your show that you're doing now, because you know, you are touring, how has the world we're living in right now informed the content in your show i know it's musical i know it's talking about like how has it informed what you're going out and talking about well i mean it's definitely political i don't shy away from that but i try to come come at it from a place that's not didactic that has you know an openness to it i mean i talk about my travels again now that i've traveled um i'm talking about the dolly parton special that i just saw a couple weeks ago that was completely insane and i love dolly she's iconic and amazing but the special was completely off the charts but i love that she like she just plugs right into jesus and you know so i'm talking about that a little bit of course i'm talking about my life i'm talking about you know but i've tempered it i mean there's certain things that you know when i had paul mooney my mentor at my back i would say things because he'd make me say things. Because he said things. Because he said things, but but he he empowered me and in, you know allowed me to say things. But now I can't say those things because Mooney's not there to go. You know, Bernhard, I'll handle it or whatever. You know, what I mean, I don't have <laughs> you know, I don't have anybody who has my back in that way anymore. Mooney's gone on. I got gone. your back. I got your back, girl. I know, I know. But you know, we just know the world's different. We just yeah, we're more careful. We tread we tread a little more tenderly. And so I stay in my wheelhouse of saying provocative things that I can say, whether it's about being Jewish or, you know, white or, you know, gay. I mean, so it narrows the playing field a little bit, but that's okay. It also forces you to dig a little deeper and find new ways into conversations that maybe I wouldn't have thought of 10 years ago. I also think, though, too, there's nothing more effective than speaking just from your own experience because you're the expert of your own life and your own experiences. And, um, and I think that's a good way to end this because like you have been somebody who I have looked up to forever. I was telling the girls, and I don't know if you remember this, the first time we met was doing the shoe show in my apartment (laughs) and that we got locked into my apartment (laughs) <laughs> and I was so terrified. You were like, I have another appointment. I'm like, how the fuck are we locked inside my apartment? 
<laughs> you remember this? Of course I remember it. It was insane and funny and fabulous. I mean, it led to, a, you know, two decades of friendship now. But um, just thank you for being the most accessible person who always says yes. Just so you know, Sandy always says yes. She shows up. I can send her a text and say, will you wear a shirt and take a picture of yourself and put a thing? Yes. <laughs> can you promote a thing? Yes. Can you show up and be part of a thing? Yes. And you are just constantly filling the world full of provocative thought, beautiful joy, incredible music, amazing comedy. And um, I'm grateful you're in the world. Mm-hmm. I, and I am so thankful for Abortion Front, for Liz Winstead, for everything that you do. I am here for you without question, without limitation. And I love you. And it's so great to meet the ladies. And I'm just here. What else? That's all we can do right now is just power through. That's what we're doing. Well, um, amazing. We're going to tell you where Sandy is performing in January. We're going to give you all the dates. And we're going to have all of the links to all of that in our show notes. So you can click to get tickets. Uh, Sandy Bernhardt, always a joy and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Love you, love you, love you, love you. Thank you, Sandy. You can follow Sandy on social media, IG and Twitter, at Sandra Bernhard. Catch her weekly radio show, Sandy Land, on Sirius XM's Radio Andy, Channel 102, on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. See her live, the Aspen Gay Ski Week. What is Aspen Gay Ski Week? That sounds fun. Oh, no, let's I know, go. right? January 19th. <laughs> I want to be all in on that. And the Gothic Theater in Denver, Colorado, on January 21st. Tickets at SandraBernhard.com. And all of this information will be in our show notes. Moji! That's the show. Woohoo! I know. We uh, we can't wait for Marie to be back with us next week. Hope you're feeling better, Marie. Uh, we want to say thank you so much to Sandy B and Greer Donnelly and Jill Lenz for joining us today. And thanks to you so much for listening. We're here for you as we navigate these crazy dark days. And we want to be a reliable info hub and a source of humor as we face some really hard times ahead. We're in this together and we got you. You like the pod? Subscribe, write a review, give us five stars. It's the best way for our podcast to reach more people. And by doing so, you're going to help more folks learn about this assault on abortion access. To keep up with all the latest repro news, follow Abortion Access Front on social at Abortion Front on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. FBK Live is edited by Remy DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Want to do some abortion activism? Look no further than our five-part training series, Operation Save Abortion, available in video and podcast form. Gather friends, watch or listen together, and follow the activity guide for a full experience. Details on the series are at operationsaveabortion.com. And make sure you check out the activist calendar as well, which is chock full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. Also, looking for some action? Like be a part of the solution action? Join Abortion Access Front on Monday, January 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern to learn how to spot fake clinics, aka anti-abortion centers, and warn people in your community about their scams. Sign up at aafront.org EFC or at the link in the show notes. Coming up next week, Meg Stern, Outreach and Operations Coordinator for Just the Pill, to talk about telemedicine abortion and what's next after the big FDA decision to allow Mifepristone to be prescribed at your local Walgreens. And lastly, join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and 
all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. That's right. And we leave you with a men's rights influencer named Pearl Davis, a woman who shows her whole ass when she says women have it better than men because men told her that. Life is easier if you're a girl. Um, actually, yeah, I think I think there's a lot advantage. of benefits um, <laughs> that men don't have. I'm, I'm not going to speak anything to race. I'm just talking about gender specifically. It's usually like an excuse. Like, honestly, I think as a girl, you have equal opportunity in the world. I think there's benefits. Like, for example, we have quotas for women in specific jobs that are given to us that aren't given to men. So, yeah, I would I would say it's easier being a girl. Feminist Buzzkills Live, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. When BS is popping, we pop off. New episodes drop Friday. If you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.